This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot, providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft, such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. Things are really getting bad now, and I'm trying to get the flight to divert to Cleveland. It's just off our right, 30 miles out, and uh, I can't get the lights on, and there was no rotating beacon, but I know it's there. So I'm counting the clicks on the frequency, going through all the Unicom frequencies, and then keying the mic, and of course it's a weak VHF transmitter, and I can't get them on. Welcome to another edition of There I Was a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is David Bradley. David graduated from the University of Missouri and then went to naval flight training as part of the United States Marine Corps. He graduated and earned CH-46 sea nights and was sent off to uh, Vietnam. He served a tour in Vietnam and then came back and eventually started a flying business there in Missouri. He's a CFII, MEI, has been a DPE for over 35 years. And today he's gonna share a tragic story about ferrying a flight of Hueys from Jefferson City, Missouri, down to Houston, Texas. Just a warning to our listeners that today's story does involve fatalities. So David, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you, good to be here. So we learned of your story about a flight of UH-1s, a cross-country flight that just went uh, wrong. Would you mind please just setting that up for us? Share the story. This was uh, Operation Desert Storm, the first uh, invasion in Iraq. So we were tasked to fly our helicopters from Jefferson City to Ellington Air Force Base, just adjacent to Houston, Texas, where they'd be put on a ship and uh, sent to Saudi Arabia. We'd meet them there and then fly them north to Iraq. And so the, this flight in question that we're talking about involved transporting those helicopters down to the port at Ellington near Houston. And uh, we'd been mobilized maybe a month. We were no longer under the control of the National Guard. We were under the control of the Army. We didn't, I didn't know, somebody probably knew, but. None of the pilots knew who our higher headquarters were. We were it was just a terribly disorganized mess. And uh, I talk about the ambiguity of it all. We didn't know from one day to the next what was going to happen. We'd sat there in Jefferson City, ready to move our helicopters for a week, 
of unseasonably warm, pleasant December weather, clear skies, light winds, and uh, nothing. You know, we, we couldn't find, why aren't we moving the helicopters? Then a Pacific maritime cold front came through, low ceilings and, and uh, poor visibility along the entire route of flight, and they told us to launch and to get the helicopters down there. And we worked till about 9 or 10 o'clock the night before and then reported at 5 a.m. the next morning. Weather was right down in the dirt. We had a couple hour delay before we take off. And, you know, one of the hazardous attitudes, five hazardous attitudes, is resignation. Mm-hmm. And somebody just resigned themselves to the fact we got to get those helicopters down there, launch. And the weather had not improved at all. The pressure was that we had been told that the ship was sailing the next day, the evening of the next day, we had to have the helicopters down there. There was no ifs, ands, and buts about it. So the ship was going to sail on the 15th. We were going to fly them to the port on the 14th. And that's a long flight. That's some 700 miles or so, right? That's a long route to do in a single day in a, in a Huey. It is, and it's, it's four fuel stops. And you're cruising, David, in a Huey at about how fast? 90 knots. 90 knots, and you're usually going, what What are you, 500 feet AGL, something like that when you're cruising? Well, like if, the weather be, if the weather had been good, a comfortable altitude to go down there would be around 3,000 feet. Okay. It would be about 500 feet AGL because of the weather. Okay. And it, the weather was an issue from the beginning. So we launched as three flights of four, and I was in the second flight of four. And our first fuel stop was uh, south of Jefferson City, Harrison, Arkansas. And um, when we hovered in to get gas, the spacing was good. The first flight was leaving. And their next stop was uh, Harris, or, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas for fuel. David, if I can just interrupt you a little bit. When you're doing four groups like that or f- uh, four formations, First of all, how do you fly en route within the four-ship? What which kind of spacing and what kind of formation do you fly? And then how do you set up the spacing between you? Is there any communications between each group? Can you talk us through that orchestration a little bit? That's, that's a good point. So we have, as far as communications go, in, in, in that era, there it was. <laughs> we thought it was pretty good, but it was rudimentary. We had a VHF radio, a UHF radio, and an FM, a Fox mic. So those frequencies, the in-route frequencies are all assigned ahead of time, and we can talk from flight to flight, you know, the first flight of four, second flight of four, the third flight of four, and we can talk within that flight. We try to keep the conversations, you know, to a minimum for uh, confusion, to lessen the confusion. And as far as spacing goes, uh, the spacing between the flights was based on time. I think we had a 30-minute uh, departures, you know, the first flight left and 30 minutes later, the second flight left, et cetera. Okay. En route, we would normally, with good weather, we would fly, you know, kind of certainly not tight formation but because that's too fatiguing in a helicopter. But but we'd be kind of in a in trail and uh, a quarter of a mile apart or something like that. So each helicopter a quarter mile in trail with the one in front, and would you alternate sides so it would look like a zigzag pattern if you went from back to front? Well, usually it was an echelon right, 
But if you're tailed in Charlie like I was, you, you know, you kind of flew wherever you wanted to. <laughs> Nobody could see it. <laughs> but but uh, in this particular case, because of the visibility, it just to try to keep each other in sight, we needed to tighten it up. So we were, we were closer to an eighth of a mile. And so, you know, we're about a, a mile to half a mile from lead to the trail helicopter, less than a mile. And in this flight, I could see Chalk 2, which ended up being the accident helicopter. They were having a hard time keeping up for some reason or other, and they were closer to me than Chalk 3, the person I, the helicopter I should have been flying off of. So I had to watch two helicopters. And um, I, the communications were, were pretty iffy. We had a weak uh, VHF transmitter, so we, we would transmit our messages on UHF and then listen on VHF. And, uh, it, you know, we didn't talk that much, so it was working out all right, but it was, it was a problem because of the weather. Okay, so you're, you're four distinct groups of uh, Hueys going down. Your group was the second group or the third, or where was your group in position? We're, we're the second group. Okay, all right. So there's one in front of you kind of leading the way, and you can hear how things are going from them. They're probably calling back weather or their status or whatever. And then you guys come, and you're, it sounds like you're each in about, oh, maybe a 1,000 feet trail with each other, some, something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, uh, you know, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas, gets pretty hilly. It gets pretty rough. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of trees. And and we're flying probably 400 feet AGL. Just below the weather? Just just below the weather. Okay. Mm -hmm. And our SOP, you know, we weren't supposed to fly below 500 feet AGL. So we already broke that rule. after flight, the first flight left Harrison. The next stop was straight south to Hot Springs, and somehow they got lost uh, in the weather, and they ended up at Little Rock. So we were worried about them. They they were just off the off the radar. We didn't know we didn't know where they went. And uh, when my flight made it to Hot Springs, one of the, one of their helicopters who just punched into the clouds and went on to Hot Springs landed there. He was just the 20-minute fuel light was on. They were about out of gas. And then the others, the other three, flew from Little Rock to our third fuel stop, which was Texarkana. So this is already beginning to show some real signs of a struggle in flight. You had to wait a long time. You launched a lot longer in the day than you wanted to. The weather's deteriorated. And now on the second, just the second stop, you've got the flight in front of you not only do they go to the wrong location, but they've, they've broken up. Part of their flight goes to the right location. The other one goes to the wrong location. This is really starting to break down a little bit. You have it pictured perfectly. And in, in addition to all that, only the lead helicopters in each flight had maps hmm. and approach plates. You know, we were no longer the National Guard's responsibility. And apparently there was some regulation that they they could not supply every helicopter with maps, even though they had them. But the Army didn't help us out. So this is an interesting administrative issue here, right, is that you're National Guard. But as soon as you get deployed, you get chopped to the Army. And now you're the Army's responsibility to take responsibility for this uh, deployment down to to be shipped. Right. That's the that's the administrative setup. And that's exactly right. So. There's a lot of ambiguity there. 
and I mentioned ambiguity because I, I think about what Captain Sullenberger said. He said there it was not an ambiguous situation. He knew what he had to do. This yeah. situation was ambiguous, mm-hmm. and, and that is a, that's a hard thing for pilots to deal with. Sure is. Yeah. And we, we've got pressure, and we're not sure where the pressure is coming from. We were all trained night vision goggle pilots, and I was a night vision goggle instructor pilot. And much of this flight is December. The day we got off late, the days are short. Much of this flight's in the dark, but the, they wouldn't let us have our night vision goggles. They were they were afraid we, for security reasons, they didn't want them transport them to Ellington some other way on a truck. And so so we were unaided on this flight as far as as far as uh, night vision goggles go. So that, that made it even worse. And uh, while I had known my fellow pilot in my helicopter. I'd never flown with him before, and that was the case in most of the 12 helicopters that uh, we mixed, mixed the Nebraska guys in with the Missouri guys, and, and uh, the, the accident uh, helicopter, uh, none of the crew, the three crew people, the pilot, co-pilot, and the crew chief, none of them had ever flown together before. So here we see the impact of this administrative setup. You're a National Guard unit, but you're flying under the Army rules. So they're mixing you with different crew for different reasons on this deployment because they've kind of combined some units. And then if you were under your National Guard unit, you could have probably made the request and checked out your NVGs. So you could have flown with uh, night vision goggles. But because you're under the Army rules, because you're under a new kind of uh, operational control, if you will, you got different rules, different setups, different way to go get approval for all the things you want to do. It just became burdensome bureaucratically. Is that a fair assessment? That's that's perfect assessment. It was it was crippling. We just did not know from day to day what was expected of us, when we were going to leave, you know, when we were expected to be there. Nothing. We were just told the night before we were leave, those helicopters have to be there tomorrow. Yeah. And weather was not going to be an issue. We were going to go regardless. And there's also something I would think inside of you guys, this was Desert Storm. The war was kicking off. You wanted to do your part and serve, and you probably had an internal desire hearing this, that we've got to get these helicopters here. We've got to do our part in this in this mission. We, we did. That's, that's a fact. However, it was apparent to me that things were really breaking down in a bad way uh, by the time we got to Texarkana. Well, from uh, actually from Hot Springs, at Hot Springs. I had called ahead to Texarkana and um, told the, the FBO there we, we were going to need transportation for uh, 36 people. That's that's what was crewing these 12 helicopters because we'd be spending the night there. I mean, it, it was just clear to me that we would go no further. Hmm. And uh, when we got there, the lead flight beat us there They from uh, Little Rock. They beat us there, and they were hovering out. And uh, the guy that was leading the flight was also the mission commander. He said, the weather's good up ahead. Well, I, you know, the weather was not good. It was a little better for the about the last hour of daylight, but it was not good. So I talked to my flight, that's uh, seven other pilots, about staying there for the night and, you know, strength in numbers. And uh, there was there was no everybody thought it was a good idea, but there was no interest in doing it because the consensus was we'd we'd be in trouble. We might get court martialed. And um, 
in retrospect, I should have just taken my chances and stayed, and then I think the others would have as well. I don't know. But we, we pressed on. So I, I think you're being hard on yourself. That would have been a really difficult decision to make in the moment there. Well, it's easy in hindsight because you know how it ended up, but in the moment that would have been a really difficult decision to make. Well, well you, you've been in situations like that, so you know, yes, it was a difficult decision, but it was really apparent that it was that things were not going to work out. And when we left uh, Texarkana, the Army, you know, they had a wonderful safety program, and, and, and it was a good one. Sometimes I get a little bitter to say on paper, but you know how that goes. When the, the, when the demands of the mission take over, sometimes safety goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Their safety program at the time said if any crew member is not comfortable the way the flight is going, the flight stops and the aircraft commander works out the problems before you go any further. Well, my crew chief says, says he says, Dave, this is BS. We need to stop. And I said, Henry, I know it is, but we're going on. And so the rest is history. Mm. Mm. So we, we were, the, the lead flight had gotten gas at uh, Nagadoshi, which was our last fuel stop. And, had taken off just as we're coming into Nagadoshes. And one of their helicopters, we had installed a erosion tape on the, on the rotor blades and the tail rotor for the desert sand to protect from it. And one of the, some of that tape was coming off one of the blades of one of the helicopters, and it was, it was setting up severe vibrations. So they came back to Nagadoshes and as we were leaving. So now we were the lead flight. Oh, their whole group came back. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And at this point, I'm following you along in foreflight here. You're, you've been a long way. You've been some, what, 550 miles or more. So you're, you're the last stop, only 150 miles away from your destination, right? Yeah. Yeah. About that. And of course, it's dark now. I like to say it was darker than the inside of an Angus cow in a cold bin at midnight eating licorice. But the visibility had gotten better, but the ceilings had dropped. But underneath that, underneath those ceilings, we had good visibility. But boy, we didn't have much room between the trees and the clouds. And uh, I've got a whack chart. You know, we don't even use whack. They don't even make whack charts anymore. But I've got a whack chart on board. I'd gone to my FBO the night before and raided the map case. And that was all I could find to get me to Texas. And I'm so I'm trying to turn on lights at uh, airports as we go by. And, and so knowing where I am at all times is because all I can see is dark and trees. And uh, if you ever used a whack chart, they didn't put Unicom frequencies on it. They just put a U there that says they had a Unicom. And so I'm just going through the Unicom frequencies, counting the clicks on the VHF, because I couldn't afford to take my eyes outside, off, uh, outside. Can you give us a feel, David, by this time, what time is it? And is it overcast? Is it really dark? Is there any moon illumination? Give us a feel for the environment you're in here. It, it, it is. It's just unbelievable dark. Okay. There's no moon illumination. I mean, if there had been a moon, the overcast is too thick for that to, to penetrate. And, it, and you know how it is when it's good visibility on a real dark night, it's difficult to judge distance. Mm-hmm. A light Five miles away, it looks about as bright as a light a mile away. Yeah, depth, depth perception, really difficult. It, about what time of night was it now? Around 8.30. Okay. 
and uh, so it, so it's it's dark on December the fourteenth, and so it's difficult flying. First of all, we can see better now, except for those moments when we go through the clouds, uh, hit a cloud, but we can see better. But it's so difficult to judge distance, especially with poor Chalk Three. They're having a hard time keeping up, and I'm I don't want to get too close. It, it's just difficult to judge distance. So we got as far as um, the 30-mile ring out of, out of Houston, Cleveland, Texas. And I knew where we were the entire time, but things are really getting bad now. And uh, I'm trying to get the flight to divert to Cleveland, to the airport there. It was just off our, to our right, 30 miles out. And uh, I can't get the lights on. And there was no rotating beacon, but I know it's there. So I'm counting the clicks on the frequency dial to try to get going through all the unicom frequencies and then key in the mic. And of course it's a weak VHF transmitter and I can't get them on. Then all of a sudden they just, they just blazed up. It turned out that the airport manager had gone out there and just clicked the unicom mic, put them up on bright and the rotating beacon had been no tamed out of service. But at my last weather brief, I wasn't briefed on that. So I didn't know it. When that happened, just just the same time, or about the same time that happened, lead went inadvertent IMC and called for instrument meteorological conditions breakup. Everybody, you know, go to a different altitude and a slightly different heading and proceed to the destination. So we used to refer to that as a lost wingman exercise. So when you can no longer see the airplane you're supposed to be flying formation off of, you go, quote, lost wingman. Sounds like same thing, just different thing. terminology. And it's all pre-briefed. We, we knew what we were supposed to do. Yeah. So lead, they've got maps. They've got approach plates. We're getting low on fuel. We're not that far from our destination. But the temperature and dew point were even. They were like three miles in fog, and it, it had been coming down. That was the last report I got. We were so low, we couldn't talk to anybody. And uh, But they, they went on and flew the approach. Number two turned around, and I'm a little confused of where he, where number two went. I think they, they made it back to Nagadocious and landed there. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. So Chalk 2 and I, I, I had already briefed my crew we were not going to go into the clouds because we didn't have any any way to fly an approach. We didn't have fuel for an alternate. We didn't even have frequencies to talk to anybody down there. So we were. I, if I'd had to sit in the field all night, I, I would have done that. But there's Cleveland, so my decision is made, and we're going over there. And I told uh, Chalk 3, or uh, Chalk 2, I mean, the accident helicopter to follow me over there. And uh, I could not tell whether, you know, how close they were to us. They were between me and the airport. The airport was to our right front. So I told them we're going to make a left turn all the way around and then get in trail and follow me in there. 
because I and I slowed that helicopter up to probably about 50 knots so I could have a real small radius of turn because I just couldn't tell how close we were. And um, I told my crew so that I can't tell, uh, you know, how far away that airport is. We're not going to descend until the runway end identifier lights or the threshold lights go through the chin bubble. And, um, uh, but I didn't tell anybody else that. And they got disoriented and flew into a stand of trees and killed all three of them. Mm. And, 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 you know, by, and by this time, we're, we've, we've, got the, we've got the skids. We're not that far above the trees. Now, we were, we were trained nav the earth pilots, but not unaided at night. You know, we're flying maybe 60 knots now because, and I just don't know what happened to them. They had not flown together. They had been on duty for oh, over 16 hours by now. They probably only got a few hours sleep the night before. We hadn't had anything to eat all day except what we could get out of vending machines because the uh, Army or the, the Guard could not issue us MREs, you know, the, the, the meals. So they were, they were in bad shape and three seconds of inattention and they hit trees. So, David, just backing up a little bit to set this up, when you when you were coming down from Nacogdoches and you see it getting worse and make that decision to go into Cleveland, you're still number three. Why was it that you were calling the divert? Can you talk us through what was the status of your for your group there, your no, formation? I, I was I was number four. Number one called the called the breakup. Okay. And we did not comply as did Chuck 2, the accident helicopter. They stayed VFR, as, as we did. And, you know, maybe, maybe I kind of led them into that. I don't, I don't know, but they didn't have any charts. You know, they, they couldn't have gotten into Houston. They had no frequencies. They had no charts. They had no communication with anybody. So Cleveland was our best bet. I got you. So I missed that mental picture. You're, you're in that trail formation. You start to enter IMC, and the lead calls for chalk one calls for the in-flight breakup because you can't see each other in imc he probably executes that maybe number three does you don't really know but you know for sure you and two decide not to do that because of the reasons you mentioned you don't have the equipment you don't have the charts that you're low on fuel that just feels like a no way out situation so you stay vfr and then chalk tubes in front of you, and you advise them that you're going to come in a left sort of 270 turn, and you're going to lead the way into Cleveland so they can follow you. That that was your plan. That, that's that's exactly right. And uh, apparently, there I, you know how reports are from eyewitnesses, but apparently people on the ground, you know, we're we're stirring up some activity because we're so low. Apparently, people on the ground thought that. Chalk two and I might have had it midair because we got so very close. You know, as I said, I just could not judge the distance because of the dark and the and the bright lights. But uh, they acknowledged they'd follow me into Cleveland, and then just just short of the airport, they lost control. So it seems like they made the turn. They got in trail with you to follow you, and somewhere in there, on the very final final pieces of the approach, there they hit the trees. Perhaps the concern that you had all along, you told your crew, no death perception, we're not going until these lights are under the chin bubble. And perhaps that was the situation that got that got chalked too, is that whole issue of descending into a black hole, coming down at night and having really no visual cues to help you. 
Yes, that's right. The accident report from Army Aviation at Fort Rucker said that witnesses on the ground saw the helicopter come to a, a hover. They thought maybe 60 feet, something like that. They could see the pilots inside. Apparently, they had the cockpit lights up bright, which would be a mistake. But the, from those lights, they, they said they could see the silhouettes of the pilots. And then they left that hover and flew into this stand of trees and, and uh, not going very fast, but the helicopter just rolled and disintegrated. Hmm. Sure seems like a setup for a visual illusion and a descent into a black hole, which we've seen in GA, as you know. That's a very serious uh, situation that catches people easily to come down in that and not realize uh, the elevation that they're at relative to the airport. Yeah, and, and this is a this accident is, you know, we always talk about the accident chain. And uh, if we just would take one link out, that accident wouldn't happen. And this is a perfect example of that. But there was lots of bad links in this in this accident chain. And uh, hey, David, before we get into that, do you mind sharing with us? So I think as I read your story, you had either landed or you were on approach and you heard the sickening sound of the ELT. Can you talk us through that? And then what happened from there? Did you guys stop there and spend the night? I mean, what what happened then? Yeah, the uh, we heard inadvertent transmissions from the accident helicopter on the ICS. They inadvertently transmitted. And when they were in the act of kind of getting disoriented, they, you know, one of them said, said, you're all right, you're all right, I've got it, I've got it. And then the ELT goes off. Mm-hmm. So we went, I just concentrated on the flight. We went ahead and landed. It was just a matter of a couple of minutes. And, uh, well, the other pilot cooled the aircraft down. I went to the pay phone. You know, we, we take these cell phones for granted. If I'd had a cell phone that day, none of this would have happened. Found a pay phone, called the 911, asked them if they had a report of a helicopter crash, and she said, they're coming in now. So they sent a sheriff's deputy out for me, and I sent my crew on to a hotel, and the sheriff and I went out to, the deputy and I went to the accident site, and, and we searched all night. And you'd think you could smell that uh, accident like that. You could smell the JP4, the fuel. But those uh, fuel bladders on the Huey, you know, they're ballistic, they say. Take it around and it won't leak. I guess that's true because they didn't leak. Hmm. And uh, it was in just unbelievable brush. And we didn't find it until daylight. Matter of fact, the Civil Air Patrol had to, had to come out and triangulate it and find it. I could hear their ELT going off on my survival radio. And I walked right by the crash site. Of course, it was dark as could be several times, but never never saw it until mm. daylight. So then I w- went to the hotel and, of course, couldn't sleep. And the Army Accident Investigation Team was there within a few hours. And uh, they kept the other pilot and me separate. And uh, they, they, they talked to me for a long time. And frankly, that there was so much that was, went wrong with this flight, but uh, uh, it, it was a tough time. Well, then did you eventually get, what kind of impact did that have? The helicopters were supposed to ship out the very next day. What was the impact on on your mission? Well, uh, now we've got helicopters spread all over Texas. So like most accidents, 
the investigation proceeds in bright sunshine. And uh, so the next day, we started moving helicopters on down to the port. Of course, we're short one. And uh, there's a Huey rebuild facility at Corpus Christi at a depot. So the maintenance pilot and I went down there and, and got a helicopter there. And we flew that, that to port. That took a few more days. As it turned out, the boat didn't sail with our helicopters until February. Uh, but they, you know, we were told they were leaving on December the 15th. That's all the pressure to get down there, but didn't sail mm-hmm. until February. So it turned out to be an artificial sense of uh, urgency because they weren't really sailing the next day. Yeah, the pilots beat the helicopters to, <laughs> to mm-hmm. the Middle East. We, we had to wait on them when we got over there. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows what the real story was, but they didn't sail until February. As you look back on the lessons learned from that flight, what do you, what do you take away? Well, so trying to relate that to the business I'm in now, the, the kind of flying I do and the people I'm around is I see people who maybe they're inexperienced pilots or, or new pilots that are just, they're dealing with this ambiguity of the weather. They see other planes taken off, but they're not comfortable with the weather. In the lobby, I've seen passengers say to the pilot, if you got your instrument rating or not, let's go. And putting that kind of pressure on people. So I, I, the lesson I've taken away and I've tried to impart to others is that the quickest way to get the weather to clear up is to cancel your flight. But just cancel your flight and be, be strong about it. And there will be times when you wish you hadn't, but it's better than the times that you wish you had it. So I'm trying to get people to look beyond that ambiguity of the weather. Well, everybody else is doing it. And why can you know, I ought to be able to do it. Or maybe not everybody else is doing it. It just seems like they are. And then to not get into the resignation mode where, well, now I'm in this fix. I've got to, I've got to carry it out. I've got to get it done. It's, it's just an educational process, but that's what I've tried to take out of it. And I've sat on this, for all these years, because I didn't want to talk about it. And now I've kind of put it out there to, we've got 30 people in our flying club. And it was, it was well received, I think. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that my experience is going to give somebody else the, the confidence or the courage maybe to, to call quits to a flight that they're not comfortable with and not just press on. Because, you know, you press on and nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, everything goes right. I mean, you make it, but sometimes it, you don't make it. Yeah, it just takes that one time. And and my experience in both military and general aviation is canceling those flights. It seems so hard in the moment to cancel. It's so hard to stay on the ground and say no. When you do, somehow it always works out. Somehow the consequences are never as bad as you think they're going to be if you cancel this flight or don't go or delay it. That, you're, you're exactly right. I remember in the Marine Corps, the executive officer would brief us in the morning, and then he'd say, now, any of you, any of you girls that think you're sick, just dance on up here and sign the snivel log. <laughs> no, no pressure there. No pressure there. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say this little microcosm of aviation we've got here with this flying club with 30 pilots. we got three airplanes. They schedule an airplane, and uh, maybe somebody else wanted it, but they schedule it. 
And then if they're not happy the way the weather is or whatever, they will cancel and maybe they hook somebody else out of being able to use that airplane, but nobody ever complains. So if they don't like the weather, they cancel. And I'm, I'm so glad to see that. I, as far as I know, we haven't had any, anybody uh, get in trouble in weather just yet. And we've, we've got a lot of instrument pilots in the, in the club. Well, that's fantastic. And a lot of people don't know this, but the inadvertent VFR and IMC, that's the number one killer for weather-related accidents. And a third of them happen to pilots that have an IFR rating. And, and, and that's right. And my theory on that, so you just keep getting lower, right? You keep getting lower. Pretty soon you can't talk to anybody. Listening to AWOS as you fly along is a valuable tool, but you can't, get, you can't receive them very far ahead. And I notice on, on check rides or instrument proficiency checks, I ask people, how are you going to talk to flight service? Nobody talks to flight service anymore. And they don't know. And I think that's the reason they, they can't get a weather brief for the rest of the flight or find a VFR area or something like that. They don't know how to, how to get a weather brief in route. They don't understand the, those frequency boxes, who to talk to. And so it's a problem. Yeah. You know, David, as I heard you recount the story and I read your account of it, uh, there are a couple of lessons that we've seen in general aviation accidents that came out of it. And one was you really hit on it, and that is this: you, you had a safety program that you liked and thought was very effective. The Army did at the time. And it's the difference between a program on paper and a program in reality in the moment, being able to, any crewman being able to say, I'm raising the flag, I'm uncomfortable here. And then somebody saying, well, that's it. According to our safety program, we're not going. Yeah. That's an interesting distinction between on paper and in reality. And it relies on somebody being willing to raise their hand, which is really tough to do in the moment. Yeah. And, and so what has to happen for that individual pilot a crew member to raise their hand is there has to be a safety structure within the unit, a strong safety officer and a commander that will back that guy up. I agree with you. It really comes down to leadership when somebody does raise their hand to step in and protect. Exactly. Exactly. And the second takeaway for me is something that we've learned in some research we've been doing in the Air Safety Institute is the importance of that first decision you make. It's so important because as humans, the way our brains work and the way we're motivated, once we make a decision, we're very reluctant to go back and reassess the decision. And it turns out that we're actually pretty poor at it. And the result of that is what we tend to do is once we've made a decision, like we've, we've assessed all the, the environment, the situation, all the factors, and we've decided, okay, I'm going. Now what we tend to do, human nature is, any kind of little bitty pieces of information that support that decision, we tend to exaggerate them. Meanwhile, if there's any bits of information that suggest that that was a bad decision, that we should reassess it, we tend to, dis we tend to dismiss it. And so it, it really emphasizes the importance of that first decision you make, just realizing that you're going to be very reluctant to override yourself. I, I think you're exactly right about that. I think you're exactly right. And then there's that issue of the black hole. And we've just seen this over and over in general aviation where 
at night, I can just do, I'm putting myself in the Huey there with you. Just you're tired, you're hungry, you're stressed. You're with a crew you're not familiar with. The weather's deteriorating. You're at night, the visibility's poor. These lights come on almost out of nowhere at some level of brightness. And it's really difficult to assess that depth perception. And that's caught many a pilots in general aviation in just exactly that scenario. And the you didn't have this, but now we do. We have vertical guidance in just about any airport you go to. And so we're really trying to stress in general aviation, when you're going somewhere at night, forget all the stress factors you were dealing with, just as a standard operating procedure, back yourself up with vertical guidance. Yes. So when, when I gave this brief to the flying club and largely young pilots, they, they just couldn't imagine operating without GPS and without vertical guidance. And, you know, I might as well have been telling a story from the Civil War because this, <laughs> this was so foreign. But, you know, this is the basics. And this is what a guy with the best equipped airplane today can get into if they don't make the right decision at the outset. Yeah. Well, David, I'm really sorry that the event ended in a tragedy and the loss of your three colleagues and fellow warriors. I thank you so much for sharing your story because there's a lot of lessons learned that each of us can take away from this and, and just genuinely appreciate you coming on and sharing it with us. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I don't think my, my story is anything too special, but it's my story. So I hope that Somebody can find a sliver of something there. Keep them AGL. No doubt they can. Well, it's a tragic story. And like so many accidents, it could have been prevented breaking any link in that long accident chain that David laid out for us. We're so thankful he had the courage to come forward and share that story and his analysis about what went wrong and how it could have been prevented. And now all of us can reflect on that story and apply those lessons learned to our own flying to make it safer for us and our passengers. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.